Podcastle, episode 267, for July 2nd, 2013. Western Chow Mein Red Dawn by La Vie Tidhar. Rated R for violence. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is Western Chow Mein Red Dawn by Lavi Tadhar. It was originally published in Fantasy Magazine in 2011 and appeared on Locus's recommended reading list for that year. While today's story is probably more accurately described as Weird West than steampunk, the author is a longtime observer of and commentator on the steampunk genre. He caused a minor stir in the social media verse recently with a tweet in which he stated that steampunk was fascism for nice people. Now, to be fair, he did not say that steampunk was nice stories for fascists, which is how a lot of people seem to take it and what made them so mad. I suppose those people may be excused for falling victim to the logical fallacy of guilt by association. Strictly speaking, the statement, steampunk is fascist, does not necessarily commute to all people who like steampunk are fascists, but I'm not here to quibble with the semantics of Tadar's statement. My quibble is not even with the sentiment that I believe he was trying to convey, which is that the steampunk genre sometimes glosses over or even glorifies unsavory elements of the 19th century, including imperialism, free market capitalism, racism, and sexism. What I do find annoying is his misapplication of the term fascism. The word has become inflammatory shorthand for anything someone doesn't like, and as such it muddies fascism's historical reality and distracts from the lessons that I think we should learn from it. While some of the unsavory elements I listed are certainly historically coincident, with fascist ideologies, they are by no means exclusive to fascism. And if you look at the specific elements that uniquely define fascism, strident anti-intellectualism, anti-individualism, ultranationalism, redemptive violence, cultural victimhood, the analogy simply does not hold. Now, maybe if you're talking about epic fantasy, but no, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, the Nazi vision of the Ubermensch was not some decadent post-Gothic materialist in a top hat and waistcoat showing off an etheric sextant he modded up in his garage. Under Pol Pot's fascist regime in Vietnam, people were shot merely for wearing glasses, never mind brass goggles. In this particular case, we must conclude that the word fascism was used as a convenient, if somewhat lazy, pejorative. I would argue that the true philosophical underpinnings of the steampunk genre spring from a system of thought that fascists, particularly German fascists in Vienna in the 1930s, actively despised logical positivism. Logical positivism, for those of you not close to Wikipedia, states that the collection and interpretation of empirical data is the only way to obtain authoritative truth, which flies in the face of fascist ideology, which states that all authoritative truth comes from the state or the supreme leader of the state. It thoroughly rejects knowledge obtained by personal experience, introspection, or intuition, which means that Hitler's Mein Kampf would never have made it onto any logical positivist's top ten list. The most famous principle of logical positivism is that any statement that is not inherently verifiable is meaningless and can be safely ignored. This is called the verification principle. 
It was ultimately a flaw in this principle that was logical positivism's downfall. Uh, the flaw is very neatly encapsulated in this incredibly awesome thing called the Munchausen Trilemma, which, as you might guess, was named after Baron Munchausen and was inspired by a story in which the Baron pulled himself and the horse he was sitting on out of a swamp by his own hair. The trilemma that came from this story states that one can never know something is absolutely true because one has to keep proving the proofs ad infinitum. And this is deadly to logical positivism because it leaves it with no hair to pull itself out of the swamp with. But it was the leading school of philosophy of science from the late 19th century through the 1950s. And at the end of the day, despite its flaws, it is a pretty comfortable ontological framework. One might even call it warm and fuzzy. A logical positivist world is a world in which truth exists. It is a world that is predictable and verifiable. It is a world that operates like clockwork. Compare that with the goopy and jello-like vision of existence presented by its successor, scientific realism, which states that our science doesn't describe the world, the world describes our science, and I think you'll see the real ideology that steampunk is striving to reclaim. Now I'll admit, saying that steampunk is reactionary logical positivism for nice people doesn't quite have the same tweetability, but I'll take rigor over jello any day. Author Levi Tadhar grew up on a kibbutz in Israel and has since lived in South Africa, the UK, Vanuatu, and Laos. He currently resides in London. 2012 was a good year for him. He won the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel for Osama, the British Fantasy Award for Best Novella for Gorel and the Pot-Bellied God, and the BSFA for Best Nonfiction for his work on the World SF blog. He has also been nominated for a Sidewise Award, Israel's Geffen Award, the Airship Award, and the Sturgeon and Campbell Awards. You can find out more at his blog, lavitadar.wordpress.com. The story is read by Bob Eccles, who also read my podcastle, Weird Western Tale, The Warlock and the Man of the Word, back in September of 2010. You've also heard him reading stories on pseudopod, transmissions from beyond, and everyday fiction. And as if that weren't enough, by day, he's a news reporter and anchor at a public radio station in southeast Michigan. I tip my hat to a man who clearly likes to talk as much as I do. Here's wishing all of our podcast listeners in the U.S. a wonderful and safe 4th of July weekend, and enjoy the story. Western Chow Mein Red Dawn by Lavi Tidhar Massacre at Three Blind Sisters The strangers came under a red half-moon to Three Blind Sisters. They wore strange clothes, stiff-looking black and tan suits of foreign design, with black hats and carefully manicured beards. On their belts they carried guns, all but their leader, who dressed casually and carried no weapons, and who had an easy smile. He is so handsome, the boy's sister said. They were watching the men ride past the three blind sisters who gave the village its name. The stone statues, ancient guardians of this small, distant place, stared at the men without seeing. Their power had weakened over generations. Now they were little more than mute stone, and no one in the village could remember them ever speaking. The boy felt a tingling at the tip of his fingers. He saw with his inner eye. The leader rode unarmed because his power was great. The aura of chi around him was unmistakable. Unease made him close his fingers into a fist. The man, passing close to them, glanced casually their way, his eyes locked on the boys for one long, uncomfortable moment. 
Then his gaze shifted to the boy's sister, and the smile flared up like a small sun. There was a celebration that night in the center of the village as the elders welcomed the strangers. Fires burned, and the men ate bowls of chow mein and roast pork and thousand-year-old eggs and vegetables fried in oyster sauce. And they used chopsticks clumsily and complained about the heat of the spices. All but their leader, whose skin seemed to glow with an internal fire no chili could ever match. There was a fire in his eyes, too, and it flamed brighter when he watched the boy's sister, whose name was Gia. He had eyes for no one else. The village had been unimportant enough for long enough to make most villagers feel safe. When the star stone had fallen from the sky, one clear night a generation before, a small but prosperous mining industry had formed, and the village dug for and then sold talismans of the chi-rich stone to merchants in the wizarding trade, who in their turn sold them, for a handsome profit, in distant Kungming, and even farther, in Shanghai and Imperial Peking itself. The visitors, so their leader said, were members of an expeditionary mission seeking investment opportunities in their province, which was called Yunnan. They were English, he said, and their queen ruled the lands beyond the borders, where once the Burmese emperors held power. The boy knew the Burmese lands were once rich in chi, but chi depletes with use. Magic goes away, and so, always, men must seek new sources of power. The leader gave a magic demonstration for the children, making dragons of flame appear in the sky above the village, changing smooth round pebbles from the brook into ugly toads who hopped away. He found hidden objects, red fortunes, and shaped flame. The tingling sensation at the tips of the boy's fingers returned, worse than before. While the Englishman was making magic, his eyes remained fixed on the boy's sister, who was not oblivious to the attention, and whose pretty face had turned as red and warm as the fire. The boy had left the other children, shaping shadow to mask his passing. Though young, he knew his chi was strong. Around his neck, a talisman of star stone, shaped into a smooth round disc, pulsed gently. He wrapped his fingers around it, letting it guide him, until he found himself, at last, standing below the three stone sisters. The blind sisters towered above him, gentle, wind-swept faces staring into nothing. He put his hand against the warm stone. He felt peaceful there, connected to these ancient artifacts. Even the fall of the star stone did not help revive them, though it was said they still watched over the village, offering protection and guidance. Yet the tingling in his fingers grew, became a pain that spread up his arm. With a sudden cry, he pulled his hand away from the stone. A red haze was rising in the distance, over the roofs of the village. The boy stared up at the statues. Something was happening to them. Their stone shapes softened, their color changing. They seemed to move, to sway in an invisible wind. The boy stared in horror, excitement. He didn't know. As the blind faces turned and stone mouths opened, for the first time in centuries, the blind sisters were coming alive. They screamed. The boy covered his ears, but the screams pierced through him like blades. The disc of star stone against his chest flamed and exploded, and the boy cried out in pain. He ran away from the sisters, towards the village. The red haze was growing, but it took the boy a minute to realize what he was seeing. The entire village was in flames. He heard shouts, panicked cries. Gunfire pierced the night, 
and with it came a booming laugh. A bright explosion rose above the village, a fireball that hovered for almost a full minute before swooping down. People ran screaming from it, but there was nowhere to hide, and when the fireball caught them, their screams ended abruptly. The foreign men rode through the burning alleys, blocking escape. The boy saw, with numb horror, that they were gathering the young and the fit while they let the elderly die. He watched relatives perish in the flames, cousins being herded and roped together like cattle. The flames had caught easily on the bamboo and thatch of the houses. His sister. The boy began to run, wrapping himself in shadows. He was not seen. Arriving at the clearing of packed earth in the center of the village, he saw her. The leader of the foreign men, the Englishman, was standing in a circle of flame. His hands burned unharmed, and from his fingers fire streamed out, engulfing the village. Standing beside him, as mute as stone, was the boy's sister. Flames were in her eyes. She did not move. Crying, the boy ran forward, the shadows falling away from him. He raised his hands, and fires flamed. He cast them at the Englishman. Laughing, the man turned. In his hands, fire turned to frost. It shot out, and steam rose into the air where the boy's fire had been. "'You think you can take me, boy? You?' the man sounded amused, not angered. "'My sister!' the boy said. He felt the level of chi rising all around him, power such as he had not known, not even dreamed of, before it came pouring through him. A toad hopped past him, and he scooped it up. It became a stone again in his hand, and he threw it at the foreign wizard. The man ducked easily, but the stone exploded above him, and shards rained down on him. When he stood up again, his cheek had been cut, and blood was pouring out. The man no longer looked amused. He raised a hand, and a spear of air formed between his fingers, a wind weapon the boy knew he could not stop. He stood his ground, preparing for death. No! His sister, one hand raised, her eyes dancing with the flames. The Englishman paused, seemed to reconsider. Do you fear for her life? he said, and some of the amusement trickled back into his voice. You shouldn't. I shall look after her very well when she is my wife. He grinned then. Who would have thought to find in this godforsaken place a woman almost more beautiful than magic? I won't let you! Brave, the man said, and shrugged, and foolish. Please, the boy's sister said. Speaking came hard to her. Her lips barely moved, enslaved by flame. Don't hurt him. I'm afraid I can't do that, the man said, but he seemed uncertain. Your people are well trained in mining for chi, and will make valuable workers— but you are too young and too headstrong to serve me. You consider yourself a magician, boy. He did not wait for an answer. Then I shall give you a chance. Live as a wizard, or die as a man. And then the man's horse was suddenly there, and in one swift motion the man was horse-born, and the boy's sister was behind him in the saddle. The boy stood frozen. The English magician barked an order, and his men began to appear. Some dragged with them the remnants of the boy's people. Others carried chests the boy knew well, the star-stone talismans, an entire winter's work, and almost the last of the deposits. A poor fare, the English wizard said, but it will suffice. We ride. He turned the horse around. His men followed. The boy, crying with despair, reached out to hurl one last shot. The English wizard turned, grinned, and gestured with his hand. Flames engulfed the boy. A screen of fire blocked his view. Smoke stung his eyes. "'Live as a wizard!' The wizard's voice came through the smoke, growing distant. "'Or die as a man!' 
He was trapped in the flames. His hand reached out for the talisman, before remembering it was no longer there. Closing his eyes, forcing himself to breathe deeply, to slow the beating of his heart, the boy tried to calm himself. Listening, the wailing of the sisters spoke to him. With his eyes still closed, the flames licking at his clothes, the boy began to whisper the words of a spell he never knew before. Gunmen and Ghosts The man sat alone before the fire, which suited him. A small ring of blackened stones served to hold the fire in check. The man had placed a walk over the fire, and had tossed noodles and meat inside with some wild garlic. Adding a few drops of precious soy from a small stoppered bottle, he stirred the food with a pair of wooden chopsticks. As he stirred, he watched the night, and waited. Presently there came footsteps. The man listened for a moment, then relaxed. He removed the wok from the fire, and served the food into two bowls. The footsteps came closer, stopped, and a voice said, "'You're a lousy cook.' "'Shanghai Joe,' the man said. "'You took your time.' I had to be careful, didn't I? The man didn't reply. He made a gesture with his head, and the second man came and sat down on the other side of the fire. The man examined his companion. Shanghai Joe was short, dressed in the western fashion. An eye patch covered his left eye, and his hair grew long at the back. He was mixed blood, and his eyes were a disconcerting blue. He claimed to be the son of a wealthy American merchant and his Chinese wife and to having grown up in luxury in distant wealthy Shanghai. It was more likely, the man thought, that he had been born of the union between a prostitute and a sailor, and never knew either. It didn't matter to him. A man made his own way in life, and Shanghai Joe, wizard, killer, outlaw, was someone he could trust. Within reason. They ate in silence, shoveling chow mein with the bowls close to their mouths. When they were done, the man stretched, leaned back, and made a cigar materialize as if by magic. He stared at the fire for a moment, then chuckled and snapped his fingers. A flame danced between his thumb and forefinger, and he brought it to the tip of his cigar and inhaled. A cloud of blue smoke escaped from his lips into the atmosphere. Well, he said. The mine lies two days' ride away, Shanghai Joe said, just as the mapmaker said. It's heavily guarded, as could be expected, the man said. "'And you can't use magic,' Shanghai Joe said. "'Oh?' the man said. "'But he already knew the answer. "'The magic goes away. "'Used over thousands of years, the chi had been steadily depleted. "'Now only a few places remained. "'Deep under the sea, it was said. "'The chi was still rich, and Kraken yet lived, "'and high up in the Himalayas, the Yeti still roamed, "'though they were growing less numerous with each passing year, "'and seeking out the higher altitudes as the chi grew scarce.' But on land, in the populous places of the world, the magic went, and where once magicians raised storms and controlled armies of the dead, those were little more than legends now. The old wizards were ghosts, and the gunmen ruled the world, and Shanghai Joe had two guns on his belt where once a magician would have gone barehanded. Now, he said, it is the biggest deposit of chi to be discovered in a thousand years. Starfall, yes. The place was called the Buddha's Fist, though it did not appear on any maps. But there had been an old mapmaker in Kunming. A giant rock once fell from space onto the earth and crashed, forming a crater. Starstone was rich with primordial chi, and this had been a very large rock, by all accounts. The chi is too concentrated, Shanghai Joe said. I have never felt such power. 
The miners dig it out, and the artificers shape it into coins and talismans, and these are taken away by soldiers. I track their path. They go across the border, into the wild Lao lands, and into Burma. The mine never stops. The overseers are foreigners, but the workers are Chinese. Not being able to use magic might be a problem, the man said. It could also be an advantage, Shanghai Joe said. They can't use it against you either. They have guns? Of course. And beyond the impact area? Wards, spells, when you pass the three-mile radius, nothing too complex. They're very confident. Shanghai Joe shrugged. Sure, why shouldn't they be? Yunnan province was a long way away from the forbidden city, and the emperor's gaze was turned inwards. No one paid much attention to Yunnan, even now, with the British holding Burma and making advances into the Lao lands. Any villages? None. Shanghai Joe's face turned grim. None that aren't burned down. The man nodded. He turned the cigar in his mouth and blew out smoke. We ride at dawn, he said. Payment in Blood To reach this far, he'd had to make a deal, and deals made by magicians were binding. Still, he didn't like it. What he had had to do, and what he still needed to do, there was always a price to pay. They rode at dawn. Far in the distance, the mountains rose, and giant shapes flew so high they seemed like birds. It was said there were still dragons in the mountains. He would have liked to have seen a dragon. They rode in silence. Shanghai Joe hummed tunes from time to time. They both carried guns. The man scanned the surrounding countryside for signs of hidden magic. He could feel the chi level rising slowly the more they advanced. There would be wards, spells to trap the unwary. When he turned his head, once, he thought he saw a plume of smoke rising far in the distance, at their back. He checked, but Shanghai Joe didn't seem to have noticed it. They rode until the sun had set, and then a little farther. Only a day's ride now, Shanghai Joe said. The man said, I understand. Shanghai Joe looks embarrassed, but there was only so much you could ask of a friend. You could still go back, Shanghai Joe said. The man smiled. There was an old burn mark on his chest, and he scratched at it absent-mindedly now. I never could, he said. I often wished, but he left the thought unspoken. When he woke up in the morning, Shanghai Joe was gone. The man rode alone, which suited him. The gun was on his hip, though it felt strange. The chi was rising here, and with it his awareness— he whispered spells and probed for the unseen defenses he knew must be there. At noon he came to a village. It was as Shanghai Joe had described it. Nothing much remained but blackened foundation stones. Hanging from one tree he saw a skeleton strung up with a rope around its neck. It had been dead a long time. As he stared he felt a tingling at the tips of his fingers. Quickly he raised his hand, pointing at the skeleton just as it began to kick. He clicked his fingers, and the skeleton crumpled into a cloud of dust that fell down gradually onto the burnt ground. It had been bewitched to act as watcher, not finding peace, even in death. He did not dally in the dead village after that. The Englishmen knew what they were doing. One of the most powerful forms of chi still remaining was blood magic. By killing, they had erected walls of magic around the Buddha's fist, he found his progress slowing as he negotiated tapestries of woven spells. Men and women had died on this land, and their ghosts remained, enslaved by the foreigner's sorcery. They had made a payment in blood, 
where he could, he released the trapped spirits. His progress was slow. The ghosts brought his own spirit low. Perhaps that was why he hadn't noticed the ambush until it was too late. A Fistful of Starstone There were four of them, two mounted on blood-red horses, the other two standing on opposite sides, hands raised, lips moving silently. A wind howled out of nowhere. His horse reared back, almost throwing him off. From the fingertips of the standing men, a wire mesh seemed to erupt, unfolding in the air above him, ready to descend. Cursing, his hands became torches, bearing flame, and the net hissed and dissipated into nothing. There was so much chi in the air, too much. He heard one of the standing men shout a warning. There was a crackle of electricity in the air. The ground shook. Lightning flashed out of nowhere. The use of magic in a concentrated environment could lead to a chain reaction. The mounted men had guns. They were trained on him. English soldiers, and the one standing were their mages. The one on the left, raising his hands, not in sorcery now, but in a universal gesture of calm, said, The guns are loaded with starstone. Come without a fight, and you won't be harmed. I rather doubt that, he said. He shot flames at the English mage, who, with a curse and a wave of his hand, cast them away. That crackle of electricity again, and the sky darkened. Too close to the source, by now, and the Buddha's fist must have been closer than he thought. A chain reaction could destroy everything. He had been careless. The fight was short and bloodied. They killed his horse, dropping it from under him. When he rolled away, they grabbed him, and when he fought, they broke bones. He spat out a tooth and saw the shadow of a gun rising towards him. Then the butt connected with his face, with a sickening sound, and he didn't even have time to feel pain. Then there was blackness. That was foolish. The voice spoke a cultured Mandarin, with only the hint of an accent. He opened his eyes and found himself in a dark room. There were no windows. Candles burned in the corners. He himself was bound in solid metal shackles, hands and feet. The shape above him was dark. He couldn't see a face. But the voice was familiar. Did you really think to approach undetected? This mine belongs to Her Majesty the Queen. He spat blood. The voice above him chuckled. You may have thought to pass through undetected by magic, it said which is possible. The concentration here is such that magical defenses are difficult to erect. However, a hand ruffled his short hair. The contact hurt. Where magic fails, a pair of eyes might suffice. He could have healed himself, but not here. He could feel the pulse of chi everywhere. In the air of the room, in the aching of his bones. The Buddha's fist, he thought. He must be right at the source. You are still alive, the voice said, because I am, I must confess, curious. Did you come here for this? The figure knelt before him. He saw a face he could never forget. Older now, but with the same mocking grin. The flames dancing in the man's eyes. The English wizard upended his hand. A handful of smooth discs fell down on the floor between them. For Starstone? My Starstone? I thought it belonged to your queen, he said. The other man laughed. She is far away, he said. Here, I am the only law. I didn't come to rob you, he said. The other man arched an eyebrow. Oh, why then? Do you think I came alone, he said. You are a fool. You are trespassing on imperial ground. Your presence here is an act of war. Yunnan, the man said dismissively, though he didn't sound so sure of himself suddenly. Who cares about Yunnan? 
All of the Middle Kingdom is one, he said, and you are like a mosquito landing on its flesh. Sooner or later, the hand of the Emperor was going to reach down and scratch. Charming analogy, the man said, but I don't believe you. You come alone, where the Emperor would have sent an army, and you look like no government agent I have ever seen. No one wants a war, he said. Take your soldiers, take your loot, and go now. You have a day. The man laughed. Then he hit him. When the door closed behind the man, he leaned back against the cold stone wall. It, too, pulsed with raw energy. So much magic, and he couldn't use it to free himself. But there was more than one kind of magic in the world. Once, several years after leaving the burned village, he had found shelter from the rain in a barn on the outskirts of Kunming. There had been other itinerant travelers there, and one, an old, one-eyed man, showed him magic. There had been no chi in that place for a long time, and none that he could detect, and yet the man made doves appear out of nowhere, and pulled streamers of colored silks out of the air, and made coins disappear. He cut a rope clean in half, and then joined it as if it had never been broken. The other men there laughed and clapped, but he just stared, and then said, almost accusingly, This isn't magic. No, the older man agreed. He had a reedy, though not unpleasant voice. It is illusion, boy. Most magic is. The boy he had been made a disgusted sound. Then what good is it, he said. Smoke and mirrors, tricks to entertain children. I use no smoke, no mirrors, the one-eyed magician said. And you are little more than a child yourself. You might care to show more respect to your elders. The boy had laughed. But later that night, a force of the local constabulary came and roused them, saying that the farmer in whose barn they sheltered had complained. They were taken into the city and locked up in the jail, behind thick bars and sturdy locks. Most of the men found it more comfortable than the barn, and did not complain. But the old one-eyed man only smiled when they locked the gate behind him. "'Can you magic these locks and bars away?' he had asked. "'No,' the boy admitted. When he ran his finger along the bars, he could sense the faint power running through them. Chi reinforced metal, impervious to magical tampering. The old man had smiled again at that. Then, removing one shoe, he pulled aside a hidden compartment in the sole. He brought out a small, strangely shaped metal wire. Rummaging through his thin hair, another curious appendage appeared. Whistling softly, the man approached the locks and set to work. The next morning, two of the prisoners were missing from the jail, though no one was certain how they had escaped. Vanished, one of the other prisoners told the bemused jailers, like ghosts in the night. They put it down to magic, and gave thanks that the wizards they had unwittingly locked up had not harmed them. Life was hard enough without incurring the wrath of a wizard. When the Englishman returned, his face was troubled. "'My watchers have spotted smoke in the distance,' he said. "'Did you have anyone following you?' "'Did you really think I came alone? I cannot risk a war.' "'There was a village,' he said. The Englishman said, "'What?' There was a village. It was only a small village, far from here. A star had fallen there, centuries before, and it was relatively prosperous. What are you talking about? You probably don't even remember it, he said. His hands had been busy before. Now, before the Englishman could react, he had slipped out of the unlocked shackles. When he rose, he was holding a slim, long blade. What the— And then the blade was against the man's neck. You came there in friendship, he said, and you looted the village of its two greatest treasures— Three blind sisters, the Englishman said. When he spoke, his Adam's apple bobbed against the blade. The man smiling grimly in the darkness. I've come for my sister. There was a boy, the Englishman said slowly, in the flames. You? 
Where is she? Would it matter if I told you I loved her? The Englishman's voice was low, bitter. If the elders had let us, we would have been married there and then, but they would not have a foreigner marry the flower of the village. You lie badly. Would it matter what I said? the Englishman asked. Then, no, I don't think so. The blade moved. It drew blood. The Englishman stood very still. She died, he said softly. The fever took her, three years ago now. We were happy. I wasn't, he said. Then, remember the flames. The blade moved. The Englishman didn't make a sound as he dropped softly to the floor. Red Dawn You did well, the captain said. The Imperial Guard had moved in through the night. Now, with dawn peeking over the horizon, the Buddha's fist was fully occupied. In the dim light, he could see the deep shafts leading into the mines, and already the grimy, dusty workers were lining up for their first shift. The soldiers kept order. The British force, lacking their leader, had been only grateful to retreat. No one wanted a war. And the Emperor now held the mine. What will happen to them? he said. The captain looked surprised. Who? he said. Them. He gestured at the miners. Some may have come from his village once. He could have been one of them now, if things had turned out different. A slave. The captain said, They will continue to work. The mine must remain open. Life mining she was short and hard. He said, And when they die? Others will take their place. I see. They escorted him away from the mine. At the end of the three-mile radius, he stopped the horse. They had given him a new one, though he missed the other. You did well, the captain said again. The emperor will be grateful. Yet the emperor did nothing to stop the massacre at Three Blind Sisters. He smiled then, and made a cigar materialize. The sun was just beginning to rise, and dawn was painting the sky. Got matches? he said. Before the captain could reply, he said, Never mind, and clicked his fingers. The captain shouted, and his men, sensing something was wrong, approached at a trot, but... There was a moment of absolute silence. He could feel the build-up of chi, sense electricity in the air. Then the flame burst from his fingertips, pure, concentrated magic burning, and he brought his cigar to the flame and drew on it, and puffed out smoke. Then, with a careless gesture, he threw the flame away. He could not hear their shouts. The flame arced through the air, racing back to the source, growing as it traveled. He rode away then, fast. No one followed. When he turned back, a red dawn had filled the sky, and the ground behind him was scorched dry. When he clicked his fingers again, nothing emerged but a hollow sound. He threw away the butt of the cigar and rode away. And welcome back. We love weird westerns here. Actually, I think Levi is somehow incredibly gifted at telling them. We ran his wicked, completely messed up Gorel story, Buried Eyes, last year, and he's got more stories set in that world. But this is the first weird Eastern Western I've seen, and I really liked it. Hope you did too, and hope you thought it was a fun way to spend this 4th of July week. Hey guys! Our Flash Fiction Contest is now open for submissions. Hopefully you all have been working real hard on your stories, getting them ready. Hopefully you've already sent them in. I know a few of you are really excited to have a chance to get past Anne Leckie. The submissions window is limited, 
We're going to be closing it in August at some point, so hone those stories and enter them. You're allowed to enter two stories, 500 words each, and the winners will be featured here at Podcastle. So what are you waiting for? We love to read them and hopefully hear them. All right, feedback this week is for Julia Rios's Oracle Gretel, read by Marguerite Kenner, our friend from Cast of Wonders. This was a fairy tale retelling of how Gretel made it to contemporary times with her brother, now a cat, and what she's been up to. Chemistry Guy said, I like this one. It was a bit strange jumping back and forth in time, but I was able to keep up. There were lots of parts that seemed a bit out of place, but I'd imagine one would take many interesting paths over the course of centuries. It left me wondering, especially as it was pointed out that Gretel's hair was gray at the end, whether it was one Gretel living in a long existence or a line of Gretels, each one taking their place once the old witch dies. It appeared as though the girl at the end was destined to be the new Gretel after she was given the shoes. Asake Yumi said, I love this story. I liked the humor of it. The orders via social networking games were funny. And I loved all the different styles of future telling. The eggs, the song lyrics, the Ouija. Not everyone was a fan, though. MacArthur Bug said, I adore modern retellings of fairy tales. I have huge spaces reserved on my bookshelves for collections of them. It's nice to see one I haven't heard or read yet. That said, this did nothing for me. It wandered a lot. I really, really wanted to like Gretel, but I couldn't. I own a Drendel. I made gingerbread houses and framed creepy little scenes in them for Christmas. Hansel and Gretel retellings, dark, sweet, etc., are right up there with Snow White retellings for me. This one just wasn't as good. I really rather liked the ending, even though, of course, she became the witch. Thank you so much for those comments. Get on your horse, ride down to our forum, where the comments flow like beer. Take in a show, have a drink, and let us know what you thought of this week's story. And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast floating high above the Emperor's sorcery. Thanks. And if you can't afford to donate, please spread the word about us any way you can. Well, that was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Ann Leckie, Peter Wood, M.K. Hobson, Anna Schwind, and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week when we head down to a different border. This one in Mexico. Hasta la vista, baby. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Voltaire said, It is dangerous to be right in matters on which the established authorities are wrong. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a week. <laughs>